Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I'm James Rosica. Uh, and uh, great pleasure to bring you two films about, uh, about gods and men. Uh, this episode uh, on the Two Real Cinema Club, we're going to be talking about uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. Comparing that with 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. Can't wait. Get those gods on screen. Um, uh, I'm going to start off, though, by reminding people um, if they want to uh, find us on the Internet, then they can. So uh, we're on Twitter at Two Real Cine Club at Twitter. Uh, we're on Instagram uh, at Two Real Cinema Club. And you can read our blogs. We've got a new blog now. Um, we'd love it if you go and read it, which is TwoRealCinemaClub.com. And finally, if you want to complain about any of those links, you can email us the TwoRealCinemaClub at gmail.com. I think that's where most of the communication is going to be, the complaints to the email. <laughs> yes, yes, email complaints at, yes. <laughs> In fact, we may have to start up uh, several complaints inboxes. So complaints for at. <laughs> so, so uh, well, this is our first uh, first venture into the, to the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe. So have you seen many of these films, you MCU followers in your, in your house? Uh, not really, and I am definitely not the target audience for these films, but we did see Black Panther a few years ago, and I think that's Marvel, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was a very zeitgeisty I, Marvel, yeah. Okay, good. I get a little confused between the DC, the DC Comics, and then the Marvel Universe-size, or the multi-universes. Uh, and that, that's why we can never be friends, I'm afraid. Yeah. You can't oh. confuse those two. Oh my God. Did you, did you read the comics when you were a boy? I did not. Ah. Had a, a couple, a couple. We uh, there was something with the thing. Is he the big Rocky Rocky character? Yeah, the thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw a little Superman here, and there's some Spider Man, but uh, not. We weren't avid comic book guys. No. So my my older brother used to get uh, like Marvel comics, and like this would have been like in the sort of mid seventies. So I and I would read them after him. So he got Iron Man and Thor and Fantastic Four, and so for, for a few years, these comics would plop through our letterbox um, every week. So I, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of connection to these these characters. So it's, you know, for me, it's quite exciting to see them come back. I'm not sure yeah. that my brother has seen all of the films. I think he's kind of enjoyed a few of them, but I think I've, I've been enjoying them more than he has. So uh, Thor: Love and Thunder, uh, this year's uh, Thor movie. This is number twenty nine in the in the MCU roster. Unbelievable! I had a look earlier on, and um, so they've been making. MCU movies since 2008 and currently the box office total is in excess of 27 billion dollars so this is, this is the biggest franchise ever ever it's difficult to imagine anyone beating this just insane um directed by Taika Waititi and I know you uh, you kind of wrote earlier that you were a bit apprehensive about going to see this film and then you realized that he directed it and that changed your mind Changed my mind a little bit for sure because I did like uh Hunt for the Wilder People and then there was Jojo Rabbit a couple of years ago and uh what we do in the shadows. So he's, yeah, he's someone who I like. I enjoy the humor and the filmmaking. Um, now you've got in the program notes here that he did uh, Thor Ragnarok as well. Yeah, so correct? he did the previous Thor film. Yeah, which is oh, kind of a bit of a departure and a kind of comedy Thor film. Yeah. And um, apparently at the time, Chris Hensworth was saying that he was getting bored of the character and was planning to ditch it. And yeah. But then had so much fun making Thor Ragnarok, the third for Thor what? standalone long film that he uh, signed on for more. Is there so, one that Kenneth Branagh did? Because so he confused. did the first Thor film, yeah, oh, which is called okay. Thor. Um, so, so yes, it's one of the things the MCU've been doing is getting interesting directors. Yeah. So yeah, so it's not necessarily the first person you would choose for a 
a uh, a, a superhero comic adaptation. My yeah. personal theory is that Kenneth Branagh directing the first Thor is the reason why the voice of the gods has a received English pronunciation accent. <laughs> And then they've had to stick with that for the rest of the movies. And, oh, uh, we, we speak proper posh English. That's what the gods yeah. speak. Um, uh, this this film, film is written by uh, Waititi and uh, co-writer Jennifer Caton Robinson. Uh, so she's like a Waititi collaborator. Her previous notable credit um, was uh, Sweet Slash Vicious, which is an MTV series that ran for one season in 2016, uh, which I never saw. It never came to the UK, as far as I'm aware. Um, so I did uh, track it down online and watched watched the uh, the trailer, um, and it actually looks terribly entertaining. It's um, uh, an episodic drama or kind of comedy drama about two female student vigilantes um, who are out to punish the perpetrators of sexual violence on campus. Um, so. Goes to some interesting places um, and you know, look like some bright and breezy fun. So that is where she has come from. And it feels like a little bit of that attitude maybe maybe has infused Thor Love and, Love and Thunder. So let, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain the plot very quickly. So, so and, um, like most of these films, um, there are so many things that the plot assumes you've already seen that when yeah. you come to these films as a complete newcomer, you know, it, it doesn't spend very much time explaining what's going on and it will drop you straight in. So I'm going to drop you straight in with a with a pricey now. So the film opens with Christian Bale, uh, who plays a character called Gore, someone we've never seen before. He sees his daughter die. Um, and uh, after she's died, he finds um, this necro sword, this magical sword that can kill gods. He bumps into his own god, Rapu, and murders him. And this is the beginning of his god-killing spree, which is the, the inciting incident for the, for the movie. Meanwhile, Thor, um, having been through a lot in the last 28 MCU movies, is out fighting with the Guardians of the Galaxy, who are other popular MCU characters who make a short appearance in this movie. They get a distress call. Apparently, gods are being killed all over the galaxy. Um, and then there's a third strand, which is Jane Foster, Thor's mm. girlfriend from earlier films, has been diagnosed with cancer. Um, but she is given a reprieve um, by uh, uniting the shattered fragments of Mjolnir, which is Thor's magic hammer. So Gore turns up, the god butcher. He attacks Asgard, which is uh, now a village in Norway. He takes the Asgardian children as hostages. And Thor and his buddies, um, they they decide that they probably can't fight Gore on their own, but they're going to go to Omnipotence City, which is the place where all of the gods live, and they're going to get help from Zeus. Uh, so they turn up there, there's a little bit of to and fro. They steal Zeus's thunderbolt and apparently murder Zeus on the way. They travel to the Shadow Realm, which is this uh, expressionistic black and white zone of the galaxy. They fight Gore. Um, Thor loses his his magic axe, Stormbreaker, which turns out to be a very important MacGuffin. Uh, they chase Gore to the end of the galaxy, to the end of the universe, to this place called Eternity. And uh, this is the, the, the dramatic moment that the whole film is aiming towards, because if you arrive in Eternity, um, then you may have one wish granted. So Thor and Jane, who has a magic powers, they arrive, they power up the children that have been taken as hostage there's a big old fight lots of cgi lots of magic gore makes it through the altar he eventually he gets to this this galactic wishing well uh, but the wish he wishes for is not the wish to kill all gods uh, the wish is that his uh, dead daughter will return to life uh, 
So Gore brings his daughter back, breathes his last. And at the end of the film, uh, uh, Thor's girlfriend, Jane, has died as well. And uh, Thor ends up adopting uh, Gore's uh, daughter, um, who is called Love, it turns out, and uh, promises to look after her. And that is the arc of the film. Did having having not seen many of the other twenty nine MCU movies, did you enjoy it? Did you come away feeling you'd understood it? Uh, to say many of the other is overstatement. I think I've seen one of the twenty nine. Um, I I feel like I understood it just because I don't think it was. It's not that cerebral or anything like that. It's a it's a comic book action film, so I, I was able to follow it fair, fairly well. Um, I, yeah, the background I didn't get at all because there were all these characters who never appeared again. I guess those are the, the Guardians of the Galaxy. galaxy. Um, so they disappear in the first, uh, what, 20 minutes at Yeah, most. something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I was wondering where they were and all that. And, th- and when you see that, boy, I, as a viewer, you think, oh, these guys are going to come back at some point, maybe save mm. the day. So all along, you know, when, when uh, Jane Foster comes back sort of to save the day, I was expecting the Guardians might come back, but that's just my own ignorance of the the entire series. Um, no, that would mean, absolutely make sense within the film, I think. And and certainly the, the trailers seem to heavily imply that the Guardians of the Galaxies were, were, yeah. were, were very important characters in the film. So I don't yeah. think you would be the only person expecting them to turn okay. up in the final reel. Yes, yeah, so it's ultimately just sort of cross-marketing and, and publicity for the other films, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think what probably would have been helpful is watching the earlier Thor films, because I think that probably... Uh, explains a lot of what was happening. But, I mean, the tone of this film is that there's a little bit of genre jamming because there's definitely comedy in it and um, certainly heavily reliant on action. But I was wondering if the earlier films are that same blend or is that a Waititi thing? Or? Yeah, I think the earlier Thor films were considerably more po-faced. Okay. So, yeah, it, it, I, I think the same is true in the comics as well. Thor is not a great guy for gags and he has a bit of a kind of like an old-fashioned slightly stale sense of humor in the comics and he's yeah he's reasonably serious most of the time in the earlier movies as well and it was only when um taika waititi directed the third thor standalone film that we we were allowing thor to be funny so it very much borrows the tone from that third film and not the previous ones mm. i i found this kind of this this straddling of tone you know, a, a little bit problematic because it has one foot in comedy and one foot in in kind of threat and danger. And yep. it's very difficult, I think, to consistently straddle that uh, border. And yeah. so I think uh, and the, the danger is that um, most of the comedy, I think, happens uh, is funny, but most of the, the threat and the danger and the worry is very quickly undermined by a gag. And you're never really allowed to feel you know, frightened or feel much pathos or... Um, feel like there's any real threat in the film so i think yeah. i felt, felt like that was a little bit of a failing of the story because you know i you know i enjoy joke as much as the next person but um yeah when it, when there's a joke every 20 seconds it becomes difficult to feel the other emotions that the film is trying to key into yeah that makes good sense i mean i, I in the blog i tried that i tried to post i didn't do a very good job of posting it but <laughs> um i did say yeah i felt like i was going to be in good hands because i like what tt and I, I like his films and his style and yet his hands, I think, are tied here because you have to you have to hit the the Marvel touchstones, I suppose, which are the action pieces. And then when you're trying to bring in a, a, a humor, that it seemed to me like Chris Hemsworth enjoyed that. I don't know if it, that was a feeling I should have gotten from the the actor, but it seems like he's having a fun time. And you said he was a little bit interested in leaving the Thor series. 
um, seems to have fun with some of the comic moments, and the other ones are just they're kind of rote moments where you've got to get the action in there. So I felt like yeah, it's 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 difficult. It's a difficult balance that comedy and that action, and I don't know that it always works for me here. Reading about the way they made the film, apparently. Um some of the uh, plot points and a lot of scenes involved an awful lot of improvisation, which I uh, which I feel. I mean, exactly. I have the same. I have the kind of the same reaction to you, which is that yeah. improvisation is like the curse of the screenwriter, isn't it? We don't yes. like improvisation. We want people to stick to the script. Mm. I spent blood <laughs> and tears typing these words. Don't, don't now <laughs> improvise your own words. I want my words. Um, and I think having read that, it becomes very obvious which bits in the film were probably improvised. I suspect that the whole subplot about the jealous weapon was oh, something yeah. that came from improvisation. There are some you know, very funny, amusing scenes um, where you know Thor is is trying to get his hands on his old hammer, which he has, still has feelings for. And then his new weapon, his his axe, Stormbreaker, would just edge into the into the yeah. outside of the frame. Yeah. Like, you know, like a jealous lover watching from the background. You know, and mm-hmm. that's very funny. But it uh, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that all of those scenes and that kind of that whole subplot was something that came out of improvisation. You can almost sense that they set the, they set the scene up and there is a grip just off off camera who's gently sliding the the axe into view yeah. with kind of with comic timing um what do you feel about improvisation on set do you uh, I, I feel like that the, the like the two opposite views uh for this kind of way of working it's either you know either you like hitchcock where absolutely everything in the frame is utterly controlled yeah or you like you know mike lee where things are an awful lot looser and you, know, you let the improvisation form the story which which side of the which side of the sword do you fall on? Do you think? I'll take Hitchcock. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think we spend so much time writing and rewriting and redrafting that you end up with a story that you've put so much into, and so many people have given you notes on that. That's what you want to film. At least give it a chance. Yeah. Um, so that if there is improvisation, it sort of has to be solidified and finalized, and then sort of rewritten so that it, it, it does deliver. I, I can't imagine on a big set where you're spending a lot of money improvising stuff and then including it like these these acts envies in this film i mean that's <laughs> going to lead to perhaps budget overruns because all of a sudden you've got to create a whole new cgi um sequence um so it, to a certain extent it must be sort of uh, ultimately rehearsed and then okayed i would think but i mean if it's straight improvisation that's uh, for me that's just too much risk i don't know there are some terrific sequences in this film i came away thinking that the the black and white expressionist sequence when they go to the shadow realm yeah which is this tiny tiny planet and they're kind of they're sort of running around the outside of it and they're stepping in and out of the shadows and uh, the sort of the nightmarish monsters which is sort of out of focus on on the horizon it feels very very dreamlike i think having seen every mcu film they've made so far i've seen mm-hmm. every 29 and i i'm wow. not sure i've seen a finer more cinematic 15 minutes than those 15 minutes of thor 4 i think that was just beautiful yeah, yeah. it's fantastic but and equally, i did, i was gonna say i loved yeah. the beginning which is just this scorched earth uh, passage yeah. with christian bale and his daughters suffering while eventually he stumbles on his god who's just living in this lush garden with these crazy creatures around him and um, I love that. I thought that was really profound. When an opening like that just made me think, this is going to be a pretty powerful movie. It's it's a very elegant setup, isn't it? it yeah. And especially if you're coming into a film where there's so much baggage and so much background, um, you know, to 
give you this kind of nice, quick, elegant setup with a character that you've never seen before. And immediately you understand where he's coming, where he's coming from, what his motivations are yeah. um, and, and how he's going to do it. I think actually that is a very skillful bit of setup, skillful bit of writing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one other one other little um, scene that really stood out for me, um, which is a, you know, a really small little moment. Um, which is the scene when Jane is in hospital and Thor comes to visit her. Um, and off screen, he obviously completely wrecks the vending machine. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> when he's kind of trying to get some snacks out for her. Um, it just kind of feels like a very sort of, you know, clumsy demigod sort of thing to do. And that scene, tell you what, actually reminded me of um, the scene in Arthur from is it 1981, 1982, with yeah. Dudley Moore and John Gielgud in the hospital. And there's this kind of lovely pathos that, you know, Dudley Moore is you know another man who finds it very difficult to express himself and is kind of quite childlike and he's losing somebody that he loves and sort of isn't able to express it and expresses it through these sort of rather silly gifts that he brings. I thought that, you know, I felt like there was an echo of that. That's the one good scene in Arthur. There was an echo of that that scene from Arthur in, in Thor here. Yeah, it's nice. Nice when kind of, um, you know, when you can have like your know, genuine little bit of understated, um, you know, emotional weight. So when, you know, when it does work, it works very well. Yeah, it did. Those scenes did it uh, confuse me a little bit, I must say. Um, there's the other one where Jane Foster, where Natalie Portman's character breaks a sink. Um, these moments where they seem very human, yet we're supposed to also accept uh, simultaneously that they're all powerful. And there was, it just seems like, uh, I don't know that he would bust up that machine because in, <laughs> in his little village, I mean, it seems like a very normal lifestyle and they're just walking around the the village and the people as if they were just other citizens of the community. And it's just, uh, a, there's a little bit of a cake and have it too thing going on there that, uh, um, again, I think it goes along with the sort of the genre jamming of comedy and action together that you're sort of having it both ways. There's a, a couple of things worth noting, I think, about the, the way the films turned out. It's, it's, this film, um, unlike quite a lot of recent uh, Disney releases, um, I think it does try to make a proper play for diversity. Um, yeah. So, you know, so we have kind of like Korg, the, the giant stone man who you know, makes a baby with another guy. And, you know, that's 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 how he works. And mm-hmm. Valkyrie, I think, kind of, see, I, I had to look this up afterwards. I think she identifies as bisexual, but she she's kind of sort of flirting with one of Zeus's handmaidens. Yes. Um, and then you know, at the end of the movie, Thor becomes you know, a single parent family. Yes. And the children of Asgard are from, you know, are from every race, from every continent. They, yep, you know, yep. I think th- there is a kind of nod to diversity here, which is not the easily edited out nod that we have seen in some other recent releases. Mm-hmm. I think if you wanted to eliminate all suggestion of diversity in this film, you'd have to cut away a good 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and isn't you know, Valkyrie, can, she's called King Valkyrie, isn't she? Oh, is that right? Oh, man, yeah, that even... I don't think that, she's that, a Queen Valkyrie. Yeah. Oh, that, that uh, passed me by completely. So there you yeah. go. So, I mean, I think that's actually pretty cute. Yeah. Um, so I was glad to see that. But I, I did come away slightly questioning um, what the rules were yeah. uh, in this film. Because yeah, yeah. in a film where everything is at stake and... You know, we're supposed to worry about whether the gods are going to be killed. And there, there is a bit of a question mark. On, well, do we really care whether the gods are killed? Yeah. But yep. um, in a film where everything is, is at stake, nobody is able to die. So like, you know, Korg, the stone character is, is killed, but actually, yep. you know, he's just a face and he's still absolutely fine. Yep. Yep. Um, Jane <laughs> dies at the end of the movie, but she's not really dead because she goes to Valhalla and will probably come back in another movie. 
um, Zeus is you know, obviously killed in this big battle in in uh, in omnipotent city, Ooh. and then at the end of the movie, he's still alive, and someone is is you know cleaning his wounds with a cotton bud, yeah. and it makes you think uh, you feel a little bit cheated. Yes, that uh, really there were no stakes then. Um, any movie that has you know a, a wishing well at the center of the universe that will grant any wish is Oof. going to run into problems. Yeah, I, that's about... what. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish up. Sorry. I was was just going to say that you know you're going to run into problems about well, what are the rules? What's possible? What's not possible? Who lives? Who dies? Actually, you know, the whole thing is up for grabs. Nothing really means anything, and that that kind of deflates you. I think a little bit deflates your enjoyment. You were going to say. Well, I was going to say that, you know, if, if they talked about, and maybe I missed this, if they start talking about that wishing well in Act 1 or we get some idea that that's coming up, then it yeah. makes it a little easier to accept. It was really hard for me to accept that Gore, when he's dying, can bring his um, daughter back to life. Um, and, uh, you know, you get these last-minute wishes. And, and then, yeah, that, uh, that uh, Jane Foster can be there with Thor at the end when she's dying or is she dying. It just, I, it's just too much at the very end to accept. And... The ending for me was problematic because I also, I wouldn't, I, don't, I mean, obviously Marvel's trying to set up this next bit with Love and Thunder working together and they're creating a new superhero, I suppose, but, and this might come from the comic the book, the, 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 the source material itself, but um, I find it hard to believe that you would keep the daughter of someone uh, potentially that evil around, <laughs> I, I, that you would raise that child yes. as your own. Um, so for me, that was problematic. It's just, uh, it was, yeah, it was just too much. Um that she comes back to life, and uh, you know, here he is killing gods, but uh, able to raise his own daughter from, from the dead at the very end, at the last minute. So it was just, uh, again, if it comes up earlier, if it's set up somehow, and we'll see that sort of in Jason the Argonauts, where you're granted five wishes or whatever. But mm. here, it was never set up. That was not part of the agreement that I had between viewer and uh, director and film and and writer. So that was disappointing. I did come away feeling they'd slightly fudged that ending because I felt there would be a great deal more pathos if. The big race to stop Gore from reaching the center of the, you know, the the, the galaxy or the universe, or whatever, is all about, you know, stopping him from having this ultimate destructive power. And yeah. the way that it seems to play out, as far as I understood, it was that his plan was to to use the wishing well to kill all the gods, and then at the very last minute, Thor makes this sort of impassioned speech, and he changes um, his mind and brings his daughter back. And yeah. I felt, well, surely it would have much more emotional impact if if the whole intention of his quest was to bring the daughter back. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and and, uh, and you know it, the fact that Thor is there shouldn't be you know what changes his mind about you know a, a parent's yeah, deepest yeah. wish. Um, but a, that that would it's a if that was his original desire, it's a very roundabout way of getting there, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to take out every god I possibly can before I get to the wishing well and then get my daughter back. Um, it like seems like he is... he has to make that sacrifice. He he can't live and have his daughter come back. It doesn't seem at the very end. So it's um. There are just some rules there that are introduced to us very, very late in the film that are a little hard to accept. And then there's also love. Love becomes this power at the end. I think they, they, it's right, very much on the nose that love's going to cure all and help everything. And again, that came at the end, and it was just kind of corny to me. So the last couple of minutes were problematic for me. It's a shame because there's plenty to enjoy. And I did come out with a big smile on my face. I yeah. well, I went uh, with my daughter, who's a big fan. She's also seen all of the MCU movies oh, okay. and she's read yeah. the comics and uh, she's, you know, kind of really, really into it. And I asked her, yeah. you know, if, if you had one thing to say about Thor um, that you wanted to point out on the podcast, what would you what would it be? And she said that she felt that Jane 
So Thor's girlfriend, who is a character that she's always disliked until this movie. She felt that Jane didn't get enough action of her own. And I think actually she's exactly right that we have like a new Thor now holding the Mm -hmm. hammer, wearing the outfit. Yeah. um, And uh, she's a woman. And yet she doesn't really get to shine and do Thor type stuff on her own. She's always kind of second fiddle to the male Thor. Yeah. You know, she uh, turns up and she backs him up. You know, she's always asking for advice about her catchphrase, but she's never, exactly, she's never quite allowed to be, you know, purely superhero on her own. And I agree, I feel like that's actually a little bit of a missed opportunity. Um, I feel like, you know, um, Natalie Portman clearly went to the gym before this movie and it's a shame she didn't get to flex, uh, you know, properly on her own terms. Yeah. Do me a favor. Explain the very ending that comes in the credits when Jane is, or maybe before the credits, actually. You feel like she's going to come back in a future film, that character? I was, yeah, kind of surprised and disappointed that she turns up in Valhalla. And it feels to me very much like it's leaving the door open for her to come back. Okay. And who is that? Who does she see there? I didn't catch that because it was Uh, on the way. So uh, she sees Idris Elba, um, who plays, oh, and I'm going to have to look it up now. Okay. Okay. I couldn't tell if it was Chadwick Boseman from uh, Black Panther. I thought that's kind of impossible. But... Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah but I, absolutely. Again, it was, it, I was on the way out, and then I, I didn't realize I had been told or heard on another podcast that you've got to stay till the very end of these films because there's usually something, and then again, the Russell Crowe reappears. Heimdall, that's it. Here we go. Who is um, so? He is a Norse god who can see all. Oh, so he's in in charge of the Bifrost, which is like the uh, the Norse gods version of the teleporter. Okay, sends people around the around the galaxy. So I think yeah, that's like it feels like another little Easter egg, and not something that anybody would particularly enjoy if they hadn't seen all the other films that he was in. It just leaves you feeling a little okay. bit nonplussed. Uh, Sif, who's the character who gets her arm chopped off, I felt like they missed a they missed a oh, yeah. yeah they missed a trick there, didn't they? Having her, not having her arm in Valhalla. That was a, a callback that was begging to be oh, had, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But uh, they dropped the ball there. Should have been a seven arm gag. Well, they got I guess they give the restrain themselves. So are you gonna be queuing up to are you gonna be queuing up to see film twenty uh, thirty one and thirty and, and thirty two and thirty three now? Are you do a convert, they, do you think? Do we know what they are or not? Um, I think they had a they had a big announcement the other day, actually. I think the next one is gonna be okay. Black Panther two. Okay. I'll give you my my take on the superhero movies because they're obviously very popular right now, um, and in this film I think uh, reaffirms my 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 ideas anyway. Um, I think right now Americans in particular were like very convinced that we can't do anything to solve our problems, climate change for mm-hmm. example, or our electoral system, uh, and that you need big personalities or superheroes to come along and take care of things and I just I don't buy that and a lot of this film to me is that uh, either at the end we get this idea that love will take care of everything or that gods will take care of everything and honestly it kind of keeps us from it keeps us in this place where we're waiting for something to come along whereas we really have to take care of stuff on our own and we've got to make stuff happen you have to do something in order to get results and the superhero movies just seem like this uh, it's almost a permission structure to just eat popcorn and do nothing and then see what happens in the world as opposed to making something happen in the world. So I, I, I'm not a fan of the movies in general, but I also think that, especially this one, which really is all about gods, and I found myself rooting for Gore the God Bitcher, which were alive. <laughs> I mean, I kind of wanted to see that explored a little bit more, but again, I think it kind of undercut the whole thing where he 
does he kill that many gods? You were saying no many people don't die, so um, he's not that successful. I think he probably you know there's this implication that he's killed a few gods on his way to the uh, to the village before he encounters Thor. But um, it was interesting. I mean, the thing that makes him evil is this thing about like uh, capturing the children and keeping them and holding them ransom, and that's. Feels very much like Donald Trump, sort of uh, imprisoning uh, migrant children. So I think again, a little bit on the nose, but um, I think that's what makes him evil. Otherwise, the idea of taking a look at gods and seeing how powerful they are—obviously, Marvel's not going to do that. I don't think um, because they are all about uh, the god system. So I, I, for me, I'm an atheist. I wanted to see some gods come down, or at least be re-examined a whole lot more. And I'm, I know you're not going to get that in a Marvel film, but. That was sort of the promise of the premise to me, that you've yeah. got someone called the God Butcher. You've got to explore that character because I thought Bale was good. I thought his scenes were good. Um, I thought that opening Scorched Earth, I thought that Desolation uh, uh, sequence that you were talking about was great. And it just seemed like there were some godless spots that were really telling, whereas the ones that were godful um, were just an action film. Ultimately, it wasn't really... Uh, uh, the promise of the, the, this whole idea of uh, someone out to get all the gods was never really satisfied for me. It's it's curious that during that brief Guardians of the Galaxy sequence, you know, after they do all the battling and the the fighting, they have this distress call that oh, apparently gods are being killed all around the galaxy, and, yeah. and everybody's of one mind. Oh, this is terrible. We must try and stop this. But you're exactly right. You would think that you know some people would question. Uh, whether we really need to uh, interfere there, or maybe the yeah. gods have had their time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Is, yeah. So now these these films are about uh, teaching people to feel helpless. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's yeah. shocking. Yeah, yeah. I, I I feel that way. It's like it is just it's permission not to do anything and and just wait around for something else to happen. So I I just feel like there's a missed opportunity there. Obviously, it's not the film that they want to make, but um, as a result, I, I'm not really sure what this film really is for me. To understand what what are the, the big themes, what are the takeaways, what's really going to make me think as I leave the theater. I mean, I think the theme is probably something to do with you know, love will conquer all, isn't it? But whether mm-hmm. whether every scene really <laughs> reinforces that idea, I yeah, absolutely I don't know. I think the film is mostly about let's get some crazy gags in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, gags and CGI. Yeah, well, and I wanted to talk about CGI quickly because it made me think of this one lecture I saw. Um, uh, the town where I grew up as a college and a graduate came back and he was showing all of his special effects work on, uh, he worked on the Transformers films. <laughs> and one of the audience members suggested, you know, these are the pyramids of our time, the Egyptian pyramids. And I immediately thought, that's kind of stupid because there's no slave labor involved and <laughs> the Transformer movies are not going to be remembered in 2,000 years the way the pyramids are. But I think more importantly, it's like how much human labor and effort goes into creating a CGI sequence that you know, and this is work done by super smart guys, engineers. These are the kinds of people we actually need to take action. So instead of waiting uh. for gods to do, com, uh, you know, climate change uh, abatement, these are the kinds of guys that we need to actually work on real issues. And what are they doing? They're making a lot of money. Sure, their parents are proud of them for working on movies and all that. But it's crap. You know, it's just trivial human entertainment that's just very fleeting. So I, whenever I see a CGI-heavy film i just wish those engineers were doing something worthwhile that's all. it reminds me of a quote from uh, of all people elon musk and i must preface yeah. this by saying i do not take all my philosophical thinkings from elon musk <laughs> but this is a review of his biography and uh, one thing that elon musk said was that the the problem that faces the world today is that all the clever people go into law computers and finance yeah whereas you know if those clever people they just went into medicine and engineering it would be a hell of a lot better world yeah yeah precisely precisely
So those are some thoughts that got us thinking, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, got us <laughs> got us learning to be hopeless. <laughs> let's um, let's take a break, um, and then let's hear we'll from return. our sponsors. Hear from the sponsors. <laughs> hear from some sponsors, and then we'll we'll take a trip trip back to to the gods of the nineteen sixties and see whether they were any different to the gods of the twenty twenties. Minutes. Perfect. So, Andres, tell me, are you thinking of investing? Investing in what? With with money? <laughs> well, you're investing in investments. Every intelligent person is thinking about investing these days. Am I not right? If it feels like I can't, I can't open a YouTube video without having some advert at the front of it with a guy saying, "Are you thinking of investing?" Well, I've got some very exciting investing news for you. Ooh, pray I, tell. I am. I am happy to announce. That, uh, that the Two Real Cinema Club will be launching Two Real Cinema Club NFTs. Yep, we're going to be we're going to be leveraging uh, AI, virtual reality, and the blockchain with a new crypto innovation. Pretty exciting, huh? Very. So, so uh, Two Real Cinema Club NFTs. Uh, it's an absolute surefire safe investment. So uh, in uh, a few weeks' time, we will be launching exclusively on all of the crypto markets. So you'll be able to find us on, on Blockchain Blockbuster. You'll be able to buy us on CAC Vendor, Noble Market, Bump Derivatives. Uh, we'll be on Big Cash Hammer Marketplace. You'll be able to find us in Duff Investments. And also, I'm pleased to say, we'll be launching on definitely not a pyramid scheme dot crypto. <laughs> all of the all of the most reputable uh, NFT markets. Uh, uh, launching prices will be you'll be able to buy a, a two real cinema club NFT for five crypto smacks or, or seven and a half bit cash <laughs> or nine bog tokens. But preferably our preferable currency was if you could send us five hundred dollars U.S. cash in small used notes. Now, a, a lot of people, am I right? A lot of people are a little bit, a uh, little bit skeptical of of NFTs. Are you skeptical of NFTs? I am. The first thing that I understood there was the five hundred dollars U.S. <laughs> cash. Ah, uh, you see, well, that the reason that people are skeptical of NFTs is because they don't understand NFTs. You see, people will shrug and they'll say. But it's just a JPEG of a logo. And you say, no, no, that's completely wrong. It's a JPEG of a logo, but it costs $500. You can't find a safer investment. I'm looking forward to receiving all of your money. Don't forget, bookmark Duff Investments, two real cinema club NFTs. Get your cash in. back and we're now going to discuss Jason and the Argonauts uh, from 1963 oh yeah uh, directed by Don Chaffee who I don't really know his work very well at all written by <laughs> Jan Reed uh, Beverly Cross and Apollonios Rodios who apparently so, actually, the, like, a, 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 so like Apollo of Rhodes whatever isn't yeah, it? he's like, it's like a great the original name. like the original Greek uh, sort of ancient poet. Yeah, probably a poet who wrote something called the Argonautica. Um, uh, this is a little bit of trivia. Yeah. I looked up the writers. Oh, good. So yeah. uh, they're 
Beverly and Jan, they're both men. Oh. <laughs> Beverly really? Beverly Cross um, married Maggie Smith. Oh, interestingly. Oh um, and uh, he wrote Genghis Khan. He wrote Clash of the Titans. Uh, Jan Reed, I'm guessing it's Jan. It could be Jan. I don't know. He's okay, a Jan, Scott. Yeah. Um, yeah. He wrote Dr. Finley's Casebook. Have you, have you ever seen that? Never heard that. Never and and heard he came that. up with Dixon of Doc Green, which was like a 1960s black and white. It was like it was like CSI Miami, but oh. set in like sort of in, in London in the 1960s and very, yeah, yeah. very... Very pedestrian. So, like, you know, someone would lose their cat or something like that. That oh, would be, okay. like, the oh, main nice. plot for an episode. Oh, um, nice. So that's what those guys did. Okay. Um, for me, the heroes of the film are kind of Ray Harryhausen on the yeah. special effects. Um, and then Bernard Herrmann on the score. Bernard yeah. Herrmann, of course, was quite well known. Did um, a couple of Hitchcock films in his time. And just a, yeah, wonderful um, composer. And those um, special effects and music elements really make the special... Uh, they make the film quite special and uh, obviously, you know, sort of a, a uh, forerunner of all the special effects that are going to come later on in film yeah. history. Yeah. Uh, it takes place in uh, like ancient Greece, antiquity. I consider this like a costume drama, I guess, the action adventure. Uh, it's no sword real... and sandal, isn't it? I think that's what the genre yeah. gets called. Oh, yeah. sword, sword and, and sandal is another way to say it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which is in like fact, a big well, thing in like the 60s and early 70s, wasn't it, I think? Yes, even though Jason losing one sandal is a big part of the oh, yeah. of the film, the setup. But um, definitely not really uh, genre jamming the way Thor Love and Thunder <laughs> is. Um, Jason's our protagonist, and his family is killed, and he sort of loses power of his kingdom, so... He needs to get a golden fleece, um, which is in another uh, distant part of the, I guess, the Greek Isles, Col- Colchis, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really sure what the, this is something I didn't really perfectly understand, was like what the golden fleece is really going to do. It's just the skin of a goat or a lamb or whatnot. But, <laughs> it's a blonde goat, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with it, he will have some power. He'll be able to kill the the King Pelias or the person Pelias who has uh, stolen his uh, family and his kingdom from him. Um, it's kind of a MacGuffin, I guess, the fleece. Um, it's special, mm. it's cool, and if he finds it, he can kick some ass. So <laughs> he's off on a journey. Uh, he Like, Pelias is a, initially the antagonist, but he kind of fades from the film quickly because this is sort of an adventure film, road trip sort of thing where Jason assembles the dream team, the Argonauts, and it's kind of like the, the Marvel films, I guess, in the sense that there's this uh, Guardians of the Galaxy here we've got the Argonauts, um, and it's going to yeah. be a super perilous adventure to find this fleece. And it's sort of more actively dictated by the gods than uh, the previous film that we discussed. Um, they're sort of toying with Jason and the Argonauts, and they sort of become both abettors and antagonists, as Zeus and Hera in particular sort of gamble over their their fortunes and their journey. Um so he's got his crew of athletes, including Hercules, who I understand is sort of half god, half human, ah. um, and a bunch, number of athletes. Um, and uh, he gets a ship built called the Argo, and they're going to travel to the ends of the earth, or at least the ends of Greece. They're going to find this fleece. And I wish there'd been a bit more set up on the, uh, the boat itself, because it just sort of appears already created. But I think that would have been an interesting thing to add. Um, there's... Few minutes of time are spent like uh, assembling the dream team. They fight each other to prove how tough they are, and it's a, it's a very masculine proto Olympic games, isn't it? I think yeah. where they seem to select the the candidates. Yeah. It's cute. They're throwing discuses and throwing javelins and wrestling and all that. 
Um, and it ultimately sort of becomes just a young man on a revenge mission story. Um, we've got a lot of interaction between humans and gods. Um, and as I said, well, there's one half god on the crew of Argonauts Hercules. Um, he's got to get this fleece if he's going to get uh, revenge and uh, restore his uh, kingdom or his domain. Um, Acastus. I lost this in the story at some point. <laughs> Apparently Acastus is Pelias's. Son. Son. Did yeah. you know that early on when he was I, trying out, when he was doing his... Uh, I did. I recognized him from like the early Pelias scene okay. where, where, where um, yeah, Jason walks off a few yards and then Pelias, um, Pelias' son turns up and says, Augustus, but don't yeah. you know who that is, father? Uh, and then, uh, Pelias okay. says, oh, that's why I'm going to send him to the other side of the world. So he won't trouble me. Okay. So I didn't catch on there. So that was a nice surprise for me later in the film that we'll get to in a moment. But um, it seems like uh, on the... Initial part of the journey, Castus and Hercules, when they, when they come to this uh, the island of bronze, they offend Talos uh, specifically, and uh, he wants to get revenge, this god Talos. And this is where the visuals really start to kick in. Yeah. Um, he's this stone statue that just in, becomes an enormous sort of walking god, and he's ready to destroy the Argonauts. Um, and Jason has Hera... Uh, sort of as his uh, guardian god, I suppose. And she um, implores them to fight with wits and not just with courage. So they attack Talos's foot and then they can repair the ship and move on. But um, it's quite a stunning sequence for the early 60s in terms of the visuals. And I want to talk about the visuals a little bit at the end because I'm sure you have a lot of good points on it as well. But, um, you know, again, today it would look hokey. And 1963, this is 60 years ago, I think it would have uh, been very... Um, Surprisingly uh, accurate or surprisingly yeah, impressive. state of the so, art, yeah. Yeah. Um, about the middle of the film, they end up on the island of Phrygia where this blind man, I believe Phineas, is going to help them find the fleece um, if he they can free him from these demon harpies who Zeus has stuck on him. It's really quite sad because every time he picks up a sandwich or anything to eat, these harpies come down. They've got flying winds. They're sort of like humans with wings and they're... They're pretty badass, and they just eat his food and are <laughs> scattered around, and apparently he's just been a, a sinner. And at one point, Phineas says uh, to, to Zeus, why do you punish me every day? Um, but uh, Jason can help him by trapping the, 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 the harpies, and uh, then he will share some information. He just tells him that you're going to have to go through these straits, and it's very difficult, and you'll probably die. Um, <laughs> And throughout the film, the, the gods are sort of looking down, I guess, from Mount Olympus, uh, Hera and Zeus in particular commenting, and they sort of get these wagers going back and forth, and Hera can help them a little bit, but Zeus doesn't want to, and he throws um, obstacles in their way. Uh, but they still, they move on, and they uh, eventually get into between these uh, these cliffs that are sort of crumbling, and it's really impossible to pass through there, but Poseidon, this is another big visual moment, Poseidon sort of bursts up in between, he's way bigger than the cliffs and the boats and all that and he sort of holds back the cliffs as the as the the Argo passes through um, and it, it just feels like again here you've got gods interfering for for good as much as for evil um, and humans we understand that we have free will but gods are going to move around us and <laughs> they can ultimately call the shots that's an interesting yeah. uh, take um, Poseidon, yeah, eventually lets them uh, pass through, and then he sort of disappears right back into the str into the sea. So the implication is that Hera has raised him, and yeah, he'll go back. 
Um, but they lose Hercules at about this point, and um, he's going back to try and fetch someone because he feels guilt because someone died because he uh, made a mistake. Um, and Hercules just sort of disappears at that point. Yeah, but he so just does disappears. Cast dis- disappears a little after this, but not before they pick up the very hot Medea, <laughs> who is from Colchis. Uh, they she's sort of just drowning, apparently the same storm or or the cliff crumbling that uh, doomed the Argo. Really took out uh, her ship, and they take her um, back to Colchis. So very, very conveniently, she happens to be a. Uh, an important member of the the Colchis community, so they have her on board. Um, but Acastus, Pelias, the enemy of Jason, his son, wants to mutiny against Jason, um, and some swashbuckling ensues. There's some yes. swords and whatnot, um, and it seems like Acastus is uh, well, he goes into the water and sort of just disappears. So we assume he's dead. Keep an eye open. We're going to come back to him though. Um, <laughs> Sort of the falling action of the story. We get to Colchis. The fleece is there. Uh, Medea helps save Jason from the king, who has imprisoned them because he knows they want the fleece. So he sort of the king sort of welcomes them at first, but then ends up imprisoning them because he knows they are dangerous and they want the the uh, fleece. Um, so she's able to uh, help Jason escape the Hydra. Another great sequence. The yeah. six-headed serpent. Kills Acastus when he goes for the fleece all by himself. We see the fleece. It's sort of gold. It's hanging in a tree just as was uh, predicted. Um, and he suffers karma. That bastard had it coming. Six heads of Hydra <laughs> just taking him down. Uh, the Argonauts are sort of able, as a team, to sort of kill Hydra. Uh, king, is it Aetes? Aetes? Aetes or something like that? Yeah, something uh, about the Aetes. Yeah, he's the yeah. king of Colchis. Uh, he has his men take out Hydra's teeth, which is really weird, because they're, they're, apparently they're great weapons. Um, and Medea sort of is killed, but the Hydra teeth also have the power to heal. So, oh no, it's it's the it's the it's the golden fleece that heals. Oh, is it the gold? That's right. I'm sorry, yeah, it's the, the golden the fleece, fleece heals. Her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So they, the they put it on her a, like a sleeping bag, don't they? That's and right. She just oh, magically yeah. gets better. Brilliant. Yeah, it's beautiful. It starts glowing and all that because the fleece does change from sort of uh, black and white almost or colored. Eventually, it really goes gold when they need it to do stuff. So beautiful sort of thing. Um, then the skeleton soldiers come, which is pretty cool. They're battling Jason. The nice thing here is, though, that uh, logic sort of prevails because you need fat to float, and the skeletons ah. have none. So they do uh, sort of sink into the sea in many cases. Um, they're a little bit scary, though. Again, another great little yeah. um, sequence of visuals. Um, they get the fleece. The fleece. Uh, Medea and Jason have this undeniable chemistry, so it looks like they might fall in love. Zeus makes it very clear there'll be more adventures awaiting Jason um, and the whole gang, and uh, it's sort of like this classic sequel stage-setting moment. Um, now, I didn't see future Jason films. This was the first time I saw this one. Do you remember? You said you saw nope. this one a lot on television. Were there others that followed? This film was on television. It felt like every week when I was a boy. Yeah. It's certainly like every <laughs> sort of every school holiday, every every Easter, every Christmas. It would always be wheeled, wheeled out. Now, we would probably always watch it. And some of these sequences are really um, impressed very deeply on my, my yeah. uh, young mind. Yeah. So yeah, the kind of this, the terror when the giant bronze statue of Talos starts moving. Yeah, it's, it's such a great moment. It's fantastic. Moment, I remember yeah. the first time it, and to that um, that whole idea of unscrewing his heel and all this lava pouring yeah. out of him just oh, burned yeah. into my memory. There was no sequel though. Oh, okay, absolutely. They escaped to the ship, and it really looks like there should be a sequel, doesn't it? And yes. I'm sure. 
I presume that the reason that Hercules disappears is so that he can come back in the sequel and save the day. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It feels like lots of things are set up for the sequel, but no sequel ever happens. No sequel happens. Ah. The film didn't actually make an absolute packet on theatrical release, and it sort of okay. became a classic um, after the fact, I think, when okay. it came on 70s TV. Um, the special effects uh, by Ray Harryhausen are, they're great. They're just believable special effects. It's not something that's going to wow any viewer today, but... I liken them to being sort of, we talk about artisanal beers and cheeses now here in the States. It's like artisanal movie making. It's just <laughs> lovely. Um, you can see, I, I suppose, some of them are like claymation of sorts, and uh, there's a lot of stuff where they're obviously uh, superimposing what they're doing in a studio onto something that they've already filmed. Um, it's just ingenious. That's what I like about it. It's not, well, I mean, today you can just sit in front of a computer and crank something out. They had yeah. to be thinking of how they were going to do stuff and make it match with film and. It's just more human. They're doing much more with less. Um, Artisanal is the word. Apparently, I read about this. Apparently, he was basically yeah. a one-man show. Ray Harryhausen um, did everything on his yeah. own. Yeah. The only person he had to help him was his mum, who made the tiny costumes for the models. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Otherwise, he just did it just himself. It's incredible. Great, yeah. And the, the miniatures are fantastic. I love anything when they're using miniatures. It really works really well. Um, so for me, I really enjoyed this film. Um, you know, it's not layered, layered, layered with tons of stuff. It's an action adventure. I mean, it's, it's no less layered, I guess, than the average Marvel film is. Um, and another thing is Russell Crowe, I think, is in both films because his <laughs> Zeus in Thor is very much like his Zeus 60 years earlier. I mean, they look almost exactly <laughs> the same. It's amazing, isn't it? It's wonderful. This is clearly um, where they got the inspiration, I suppose, for, <laughs> for the new Thor film. The one thing I loved was there was a theme-stated moment with Zeus. He says, in time, all men shall learn to do without them. He's talking about gods. Mm. Um, and I love that. 60 years later, I don't think it's true, but it means we have to wait a lot longer before we all men and humans can live without. Uh, gods, but I think uh, there's some great points in terms of like the gods are among us. I kind of like that whole ancient Greek thing that the gods are are more human than some of our Western gods are. Yeah, um, I thought that was interesting. But I also love this this trickery that we think we have free will. This is like a I think a boy a foundation of so much religion that there's this trickery that we think we have free will, but ultimately uh, the gods <laughs> will have their way with us. There's, uh, I, I must say ancient uh, Greek gods are just the kind of gods that I can get behind because they are you know, absolutely just human scaled up, aren't they? They are yeah. kind of petty and venal and jealous and lazy yeah. and you know, all the things that humans are. Yeah, we're made in their image, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, this, this film has a great sense of scale. That's one of the yeah. things I've written in like big letters on my notes is scale. Just like the scale of the monsters. The scale of like the monuments, the scale of the clashing rocks, the scale of the gods. There's this sequence where you know Jason is taken up to to Olympus. I mean, he's like a tiny little chess figure. Oh yes, oh, standing really in front of the gods. It's a lovely sequence. Yeah. It's just you know, sort of beautifully done, and you can see it's like a simple little bit of sort of old fashioned green screen or matting, yeah. whatever. But uh, they're really consistent with it. I think it's really really good. Um, I watched this film uh, with the children, so all of us sat down to watch it together. And for the first yeah. sort of fifteen minutes, they were laughing and they kept saying, "Oh my god, the graphics!" Is what they were yeah. saying. But yep. uh, after that. They really settled into it and enjoyed yeah, it. Course, and I think, yeah, yeah and I think even for them, some of these stop motion sequences, uh, you know, still really involving and exciting, just fantastic. Yeah. Um, as far as writing goes, I think there's, there's a couple of really notable, interesting things about the writing in this film. Uh, first of all, I, I struggle to think of a film which 
better illustrates the hero's journey. Yeah. Hero's journey is that that could be the subtitle of the film, isn't it? It's absolutely it's it's um, hero's journey, isn't it? Yes. Um, and so, you know, you, you, he has his kind of his allies and his monsters and he goes to the innermost cave and it looks like all is lost. And, you know, then he's released by an ally and all those kind of those uh, classic story points. You know, they hit them one by one. Um, and I'm presuming that this 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 uh, this film was scripted long before somebody came out and, and um, you know, codified the hero's journey that all screenwriters and, you know, and all business schools write about these days. But, you know, it's absolutely there on the screen, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I really like about the script on this film is the way that it sets its stall out really clearly. So right from the beginning, like it's really obvious what the hero wants, what he needs and yeah. how he's going to do it and what's going to get in his way. Yeah. Um, you know, they make it just kind of so clear that you know that you know children following along know what's at stake and know what's going to happen and can look forward to it. And they have this brilliant gimmick that Hera, the goddess, um, you know, has this deal with a husband's use that she can help Jason five times. And they you know, they really underline this: you can only help him five times. That's right. Yep. And so you think, oh, but these five wishes—they're going to be—you know—we're going to count them off over the film. And yet, very cleverly, they're all used up by the midpoint. Yeah. And so like he, I, I, I'm kind of in the audience, I'm willing Jason to say, oh, don't use up another wish. If yeah. they got five, hold on to a couple. Um, and he uses them all up. And then it means that the second of the film of the film is so much more exciting because, you know, he's got no more wishes. Right. And it's like the stakes is really simple, elegant way of raising the stakes. Yeah, it's a little frustrating because there are a couple wishes that seem really banal. It's like, <laughs> it's exactly. Oh, can God. we have candy right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they do feel wasted, but. Yeah, it raises the stakes, doesn't it? Like, you've got to go get this fleece without any more divine intervention. Yeah, it's, it's a great, really like, clever technique, something that, you know, I can't recall seeing used in a more recent film. But, um, yeah, it's very cute. Um, the other thing that really impressed me with this film was the way that uh, the bodies of film stars have changed since the 1960s. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, like these just like a bunch of ordinary kind of slightly chubby middle-aged blokes. Yeah, yeah. It looked like the most exercise they do is a bit of gardening on a Sunday. Yes. And get, you know, get them in a short, in shorts and some sandals, maybe a toga if they're lucky in. Yeah. yeah I'm sure filming this film was a, a blast. Apparently they were, it was filmed mostly around uh, like the Italian coast. Yeah. And I bet they had a great time. They all look so tanned. I bet they had a fantastic time out in the, out in the sunshine for eight weeks, making this movie, running up and down the beach in their sandals. Yeah. But um, the, 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 the body of Hercules... Um, in this film, uh, it looks like the body of a completely different species compared to the body of Chris Hemsworth. Yes, oh my in God, Chris Hemsworth. Thunder. Oof. Yeah, yeah. And the the funny thing is, is there is a scene where uh, uh, in Thor: Love and Thunder, where at the beginning of the film he's in a state of depression and he's been at, inactive, and uh, I think even uh, the the voiceover suggested he had dad bod. You know, had to move it to god bod. But he, yeah, he's fat and kind of very flabby and in the early going and then he does some training and uh, builds his body back but Chris Hemsworth, yeah Chris Hemsworth is huge compared to <laughs> the Hercules of yore yeah. I mean almost CGI huge you start to yeah. think wait a second is that yeah. really a human oh, yeah. body is that possible I don't think so yeah I wonder that's but yeah yeah, one other point I must make about this film. I'll tell you one yeah. thing about Jason and the Argonauts in Jason and the Argonauts when people die they are actually dead 
for the most part, right? Acantus comes back. I think they've thought he's going to drown and oh, disappear. True. Yeah, but no, I, I should, the way that's set up, he falls into the sea and, you know, Precisely. oh, he's probably a good swimmer. It's not a massive surprise to see him again. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, when when people are stomped on by the giant bronze statue, yeah, you know, they, they don't they don't dust themselves off and and climb yeah. back in the boat. You know, they they are goners, which means you know, that there are real proper stakes in this film. And yeah, know, it, and Hercules experiences genuine regret when that guy dies because he feels like yeah. it's his fault, and then he disappears too. And you wonder, oh, well, Hercules is dead. If he's half god and he can die, yeah, so, I yeah, agree with you. Proper human emotion and not under, undermined by a gag. They're very different. Very different. A great pairing of films, though. I really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm kind of glad to to see this film that you saw so much growing up because I had never seen it. I definitely heard of it. I've heard of the stories, but um, I had never seen it. So it was great to get that little piece of your life from uh, growing up uh, <laughs> the same time that I did, but with completely different films. They do have like a few things in common, don't they? This idea of kind of gods and their interference in the world of man. Yes. Um, but the way that they approach it is quite different, isn't it? I am quite sobered by your observation that Thor Love and Thunder is an invitation to relinquish your your responsibility and let the gods sort it out. Yeah. Whereas I feel like Jason and the Argonauts you know, is, is telling you, you know what, you can do it. You can do it with the gods. You can do it without the gods. You yeah, can yeah. do it when the gods are against you. Just get in your boat and do it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was the attitude in the 1960s, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it's a nice metaphor. You 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 might get some help from the gods, depending on you know how you believe and what you believe, but they're not going to do it all for you. And they, yeah, they might deliberately make it worse. <laughs> Precisely. So Very these are the kinds true. of gods that I can get behind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. No, no distress call. Yeah, it's just bloody do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, do you feel tempted to try and seek out any other Ray Harryhausen movies? I think there is a, there <laughs> is a bunch, will, yeah. isn't there, I think? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do, do a Google search. He's obviously something of a, uh, I don't know, a godfather of the, the special effects world. So, um, yeah. again, I mean, the, the stuff he was doing in 63 with, with very limited resources is very impressive. Yep, absolutely. Still stands up. Absolutely. Good. Well, that's been our, our journey to, uh, to the world of gods and back. Yeah. Uh, bit of sword and sandal. Always good fun. Um, and uh, let's hope you will join us for the next episode when we'll maybe find something a little bit more down to earth. Absolutely. But until then, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us and goodbye. Bye, everyone.